Welcome to Take This Poem Podcast, where we explore the rich, wild things that good poems can do in the everyday lives of ordinary folks. I'm your host, Mary Guidis. Whether you're a longtime poetry lover like I am, or just barely interested, I invite you to take this poem. I hope it amends the soil of your life. Hello, poetry friends. I have once again two poems for you today. Both are written by Englishmen who were born only four years apart back in the mid-19th century. Both poems are about a bird, and not merely a bird, but a caged bird. For all these similarities, there are very real differences between these men as well. Some you will hear in the style and content of the poems, some that can be gleaned from the poet's biographies. The first poem is called The Caged Goldfinch. It was written in 1912 or 1913 by Thomas Hardy. The second is called The Caged Skylark and was written in 1877 by Gerard Manley Hopkins. I will read them now and then we'll talk a little bit about each author and each poem. The Caged Goldfinch. Within a churchyard on a recent grave, I saw a little cage that jailed a goldfinch. All was silent, save its hops from stage to stage. There was inquiry in its wistful eye, and once it tried to sing. Of him or her who placed it there, and why, no one knew anything. The Caged Skylark. As a dare gale skylark scanted in a dull cage, man's mounting spirit in his bone house, mean house, dwells. That bird beyond the remembering his free fells, this in drudgery, day laboring out life's age. Though aloft on turf or perch or poor low stage, both sing sometimes the sweetest, sweetest spells, yet both droop deadly sometimes in their cells or wring their barriers in bursts of fear or rage. Not that the sweet fowl, song fowl, needs no rest. Why, hear him, hear him babble and drop down to his nest but his own nest, wild nest, no prison. Man's spirit will be flesh-bound when found at best, but uncumbered. Meadow down is not distressed for a rainbow footing it, nor he for his bones risen. Thomas Hardy was born in 1840 in rural southwest England. His father was a stonemason and builder. 
His family could not afford to send him to college, so he was uh, apprenticed, I suppose you could say, to an architect uh, when he was in his mid to later teens. He ended up becoming one of his era's most famous and widely read authors. He died in 1928 at the ripe old age of 87. He was known primarily as a novelist. I'm sure many of you have read some of his novels, uh, like Tess of the D'Urbervilles, um, The Mayor of Casterbridge, Far From the Madding Crowd, um, Jude the Obscure, but turned almost exclusively to poetry in the latter part of his life and wasn't really recognized as well for his poetry till later in his life. Hopkins um, grew up in a different setting. He grew up outside of London. His father was a insurance underwriter for the maritime business, and I think was fairly prosperous. Uh, there were there was a tradition of education in the family. Hopkins was sent um, to um, Oxford, so his upbringing was very different than Hardy's. Hopkins' life was different than Hardy, from Hardy's in many other ways, too. While at Oxford, he converted to Roman Catholicism and eventually joined uh, the Jesuits. And later, after many years of training, was ordained a Jesuit priest. He died at the age of 44 of typhoid in Dublin, where he was teaching uh, at University College. He was, again, only 44 years old and virtually unknown as a poet. His old Oxford friend, Robert Bridges, who later became England's Poet Laureate, first published a few hundred copies of a collection of uh, Hopkins poems in 1918, some 20 years almost after his death. It was in 1930, when a second edition of those poems was printed, that he suddenly came to the attention of a variety of writers like W.H. Auden, T.S. Eliot, and others, and burst, really, upon the poetry scene in England and then later the world. But he never lived to see any of that. Hardy's religious temperament, I suppose, was at best what you would call agnostic and ambivalent. I think he was primarily a naturalist who believed that mankind's position in the universe was primarily tragic and at the mercy of fate and larger controlling factors that he has little, if any, power over himself. In the caged goldfinch, it's interesting that, of course, its context immediately is a churchyard. And it's the subject of death. And he sees a cage and he 
talks about the goldfinch being jailed and that all was silence save its hopping from stage to stage. That phrase, stage to stage, certainly echoes, at least in my mind, Shakespeare's um, words that he gave to Macbeth. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage. That's kind of the feel you, I get, at least, from Hardy's words here. He has pity for the goldfinch, and he notes its, its attempt to sing, and there seems to be some kind of inquiry or wistfulness in its eye. It's wondering why it is caged. But then he ends it with just complete befuddlement as to who or, and why the goldfinch was placed where it is in its state. So it's not a real hopeful poem. Um, pictures of Hardy as he aged, or you can just, he looked, he looked melancholy. And I think he kind of cultivated that image, the wizened, world-weary spectator of life's uh, rich pageant. <laughs> Hardy's language in the poem is very approachable. It's colloquial, conversational. That's a style that he um, perfected through his writing. Um, he wanted he wanted to catch the rhythms of speech of common people. It's probably not fair to put up this particular poem by Hardy as an example of all of his work. He has much stronger uh, poems, but I chose it obviously because it has the same subject matter as uh, Hopkins. Moving on to the Hopkins poem, The Caged Skylark. Of course, you're going to immediately see that this is not, this is not conversational or colloquial language. It is uh, far more compact. Um, he employs what's called sprung rhythm, and you can sense that energy um, in his use of language. We'll just kind of go through this line by line because it's going to take that with this poem. A dare gale skylark, or dare gale. If you've ever watched, um, well, I'm thinking of, of a sparrowhawk or a kestrel. You watch how they ride the wind and uh, are buffeted by it seemingly, but seem to master it. They're made for it. Well, this is the dare gale skylark, a gale being a strong wind. But this skylark is scanted or confined meagerly in a dull cage. Um, and he immediately now is gonna make a comparison to the human situation. He says, man's mounting spirit in his bone house. What an interesting way of looking at this combination of animal and spiritual being that humans are. He's in his bone house, a mean house, meaning not necessarily uh, unkind or as it is, 
mean as in sparse again. Uh, very minimal. He dwells in this, this confined place in his body in this world. Now he's going back to the Daregale Skylark, who's in a cage in this case, and that bird has been in that cage so long it can't even remember its free falls or fells, its joyous riding of the wind. And the last line in this first stanza, this in drudgery, day laboring out life's age. Now he's switching back, I think, to talk about the common fate of most of humanity. And then he, in the second stanza, he talks about the hopping around here or there that can be done inside a cage by the bird or um, the limited mobility uh, that humans have often had due to their circumstances, maybe less so in this day and age in a prosperous first world nation, although there's, there's cages that aren't economic um, or geographical. There's internal cages too, of course. He says, but uh, they can hop around a little bit here and there, but a lot of times they end up just drooping deadly. They're just um, innervated, um, demotivated by their limitations. They sit kind of catatonic, but then they'll burst out at times and, and wring their bears, come up against the barriers of their cage out of fear or rage. And that's a pretty good image for a lot of human lives as well. He says, not that the sweet fowl, song fowl needs no rest. Now he's talking again about the bird in the wild. It needs rest. Um, it, it isn't just running free, riding the waves every moment of its waking, well, of its living hours. But when it needs rest, it it drops down to its own nest, a wild nest, not a prison. Now he closes with this last stanza, which is very rich. Man's spirit will be flesh bound when found at best. This is Hopkins' faith coming through very clearly. He believes that our mortality, as St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, is going to be swallowed up in immortality, and we're going to have new and glorified bodies later in heaven. And so, and they will be real bodies. So being flesh-bound isn't the prison. It's being bound within mortality and our other limitations, including our proneness to do that which we wish we wouldn't do. <laughs> and then he uses this wonderful image. He says, but unencumbered. So we're going to have flesh in new bodies, but it won't be cumbersome to us. It won't be a prison. And he compares it to this image of a rainbow touching down on the finest meadow down, the finest little fibrous downy fibers in a meadow. The rainbow, this huge rainbow touches down on that meadow down, but it doesn't 
It doesn't crush it. It doesn't encumber it. It doesn't destroy it. And he says that's an image for what our flesh, our new flesh, will be like in the afterlife when we're risen. It will be no, no more an encumbrance to us than a rainbow is where it lands on the fine down of a meadow. Some great images. Um, it's interesting. Hardy, as I said, was very successful, very well-known, died relatively wealthy for his time. I think I read somewhere that um, his estate would be worth oh, almost six million pounds in current British money. Um, again, Hopkins died in, well, he took a vow of poverty with the Jesuits. He died young. He had ill health. He was far from England. There in Dublin, he didn't like where he was, but he, he'd taken a vow also of obedience. And so he was teaching these young Irish students. Uh, it was cold, gloomy, um, and he died of typhus. Another interesting aside, if he would have lived about six years later, he may well have taught a very young James Joyce who went to that college years before he ever wrote the portrait of the artist as a young man or Dubliners. For all of um, Hopkins' maladies, and it's pretty well agreed upon by his biographers that he probably was what we would now call bipolar. Um, he was fit, he was prone to some fits of deep um, depression. But for all that, his last words were, um, let me grab them here. <laughs> let me get them right. I am so happy. I am so happy. I loved my life. So two very different men, two very different ways of looking at the world, two very different poetic styles. I will read those one more time now. I hope you enjoyed them. The Caged Goldfinch Within a churchyard on a recent grave, I saw a little cage that jailed a goldfinch. All was silent save its hops from stage to stage. There was inquiry in its wistful eye, and once it tried to sing of him or her who placed it there and why no one knew anything. The Caged Skylark as a dare-gale skylark scanted in a dull cage, man's mounting spirit in his bone-house, mean-house dwells. That bird beyond the remembering his free fells, this in drudgery, day-laboring out life's age. Though aloft on turf or perch or poor low stage, both sing sometimes the sweetest, sweetest spells, yet both droop deadly sometimes in their cells or wring their barriers in bursts of fear or rage. 
Not that the sweet fowl, song fowl, needs no rest. Why, hear him, hear him babble and drop down to his nest, but his own nest, wild nest, no prison. Man's spirit will be flesh-bound when found at best, but unencumbered. Meadow down is not distressed for a rainbow footing it, nor he for his bones risen. Part of my vision for this podcast was to have it be interactive. I pictured a virtual bonfire poetry reading, where friends, family, local poets, and you can come together to warm our hands on some poetry. If there's a poem that has done some action in your everyday life, surprised you, delighted you, or maybe just more quietly worked its way into your bones, you know I would love to hear about it. Email me at takethispoempodcast at gmail.com and let me know your story. Maybe you can join me in sharing it with others as well.